Welcome to another iGrow season at APC. We're so glad you've tuned in. Our church is blessed with excellent teachers of the Word of God, and our hope is that you find today's teaching enlightening, motivational, and encouraging. To learn more about our church, visit theapc.org or find us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's lesson. everybody. Um, Thankfully, we've made it to our last day of November, which is so hard to believe, and we're already on week nine of our iGrow series. And tonight, we're going to be diving in, um, like Bradley said, to some of the events that were recorded before and after the Last Supper. And I will say, uh, we've had a lot of fun digging into this topic. Um, I don't know if he agrees or not, but um, (laughs) we hope that... um, the knowledge that we've learned, you're able to take some of that home with you tonight, too. So um, with all that being said, I, we're just going to jump right in. So the story of the Last Supper is found in all four Gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And now, because all of these um, were written by different men, each Gospel has a little bit different of a perspective. It would kind of be like me, Elena... Kylie and Kenzie telling a story about what happened tonight, but they're all going to have their own unique words and phrases, maybe a different timeline, something that's probably unique to them. Um, And so you, uh, well, can you pass these out? You're going to be receiving a sheet, and it actually has a timeline and scripture reference for each of the uh, accounts for all of the events that we're going to go over tonight. And so um, we're going to do our best to highlight the key events found in each gospel. And hopefully this reference sheet helps you follow along. Um, And then you can also maybe take it home and study it in your free time if you want. So um, since the Last Supper happened during Passover, we thought it would be best to go through what the Passover is and what its significance is to get us started. The Passover was and still is a seven-day event that points back to the book of Exodus, where we see that the Israelites were in bondage. And Pharaoh continued to refuse to let the Israelites go, and so God punished him by sending ten plagues. Does anybody know what those ten plagues are? Anybody? Locusts. That's okay, I'll tell you. (laughs) It was just a pop quiz, I didn't know. Water turning to blood, frogs, lice, flies, livestock, pestilence. Um, That was all one, livestock, pestilence. Boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and then the last plague being the killing of each firstborn. And in Exodus 12, 1 through 13, God gives very clear instructions to his people on the night of this last plague. And I know this is a lot of scripture to take in, and I know... Sometimes when we're reading a really big book of scripture, it's kind of easy to tune out. So it might be something where you read on your own time, but we we try to condense it, but I, I don't really think that we can because this is instruction and it gives context um, for the Last Supper and then what they were remembering. So we're going to start in Exodus 12, and it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, 
This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And ye shall keep it unto the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the house, wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his lead, leg, or I'm sorry, his head and his with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So we see um, that in this final plague, uh, it actually caused Pharaoh to let the people go. And once they were free, they then received instructions um, in Exodus 12 and 14, 12, 14 through 20, to remember the Passover. And then it was actually also reiterated in chapter 13, but we're going to go over um, chapter 12. So it says, In this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be an holy convocation, and in the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. And ye shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe this day in generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at even, ye shall eat unleavened bread until the one and the twentieth day of the month at even. Seven days shall be no leaven found in your houses, for whosoever eateth that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he be a stranger or born in the land, ye shall eat nothing leavened in all your habitations, shall ye eat unleavened bread. Woo! I know that's a lot of scripture. <laughs> but kind of dissecting that. In verse 14, God instructs his people to make a memorial in remembrance of what he did for them. And this is where we find Jesus and his disciples um, celebrating this feast of Passover during the Last Supper and remembering back to Exodus. So where's the best place to begin in the story? The beginning. So we're going to start in Mark 14, 12 through 16. 
And it says, And the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou we go and prepare thou, that thou mayest eat the Passover? So he's asking his, his disciples, Where are we going to go? Um, or, I'm sorry, his disciples are asking, Where are we going to go to prepare this Passover? And he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever ye shall go in, say ye to the good man of the house, The master saith, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So, as every year, it was time for the Passover meal, and the disciples went to Jesus and asked, where are we going to have this feast? And the Bible tells us that he sent two disciples, and actually in Luke, it tells us that it was Peter and John. And he sent them into the city to find a man that would let them use his house. And so, when we were looking at this, I think it's kind of interesting because really, like, anybody could have sent someone to a friend's house. I mean, I could have sent one of you to Allison's house to have her make you a meal, but I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know what she looks like. I don't know, like, I don't know the details of that, but Jesus did a lot more than that. He explained what the man was going to look like. He was going to have a pitcher of water on his head, and it's just that tiny bit of detail that was um, written in the account that I think is so cool. Um, how God is showing that he was wrapped up in flesh in that moment and all-knowing. So he knew exactly um, where he would be and what he was going to look like, and he was speaking out of omniscience here. It's really cool. It's a small detail that we see in Scripture. And I know, how many of you ever read the, the story of the Passover, the, the Last Supper? There's a lot of details in this that you know, I, I've heard of this my whole life. And when you dive into something, you realize how much you really don't know. And so it's something small that I've, I've read my whole life that never really understood what it really meant. But this was Jesus showing that he was God wrapped in flesh. He was taking this, this moment to say, I, I know exactly where this man's going to be. I know what he's going to look like. That, no ordinary man could do that. But Jesus could. Right. So it's a cool little tidbit and uh, something that we wanted to highlight. So as Luke goes on, after they had prepared this meal, they had got everyone together and uh, went to this man's house. We pick up this story in Mark 14 and verse 17. It says, In the evening he cometh with the twelve, and as they sat, they did eat. And Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful, and they said unto him one by one, is it I? And then another said, is it I? He answered unto them and said, it's one of the twelve that dipped with me in this dish. The son of man indeed goeth as it is written of him, but woe to that man whom the son of man has been betrayed. Good were it for that man if you had never been born. This is a really awkward part of a family dinner. Have you ever, ever been in an awkward family dinner? Yes. <laughs> and those awkward family moments where everyone's sitting around and we're having a good time. Everyone's laughing and joking and then someone decides to bring up that one hot button topic that you know is going to put everyone up in arms. 
everyone's going to be upset about and everyone's going to divide the room and they're going to pick sides and if it's anything like my family, voices are going to raise and everything's going to be awkward. Not Kylie, though. Everyone but Kylie. Voices are going to raise. It's going to be an awkward family dinner. So everyone, um, everyone has those kind of things, whether yours is politics. You know, you get in and they start talking. Uh, your cousin starts talking about who's better, Trump or Biden, and everyone decides they want to start talking about their political views and how they feel and they think uh, their opinion means more than everyone else. And it's just this awkward moment, right? Mm -hmm. If your family is really spiritual and they're really saved, then you talk about more important things. Like who's better, the Cardinals or the Cubs? You, know, you have important conversations. You know, and you realize in those moments who really needs prayer and who needs saved. If you have Cub fans in your family, they need extra prayer. You have those awkward kind of family moments. For my family, it's, uh, it's a conversation on who is the favorite out of all of us, uh, us kids. Now, it's not really a debate because Kylie knows, I know, Braden is the favorite. Okay? Braden is mom's favorite. Uh, it's not really a secret. Everyone really knows, except for mom, I guess. So it's, it's those uh, moments of trying to convince her that you treat him differently. No, he, he's your baby, and you buy him more Christmas presents, and we notice. I notice when he gets more presents. You say you spent the same amount of money, but he's got six more presents than I do. It's those awkward family moments. It's this, this kind of uh, tension. You, know, you can think in your own family of times when this has happened. It's this awkward kind of tense moment where we find Jesus and the disciples, and Jesus almost casually throws out, oh, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. It's almost like he, he leans over and says, hey, can you pass the salt? By the way, one of you guys isn't who you say you are. It's, just, it, it's almost a throwaway statement, and it's not really, um, it doesn't surprise me how they all react. Everyone is sorrowful and everyone's sad because they realize that one of them is going to betray Jesus. That makes sense, right? Read in verse 19, it says, They began to be sorrowful and they said, said to him one by one, Is it me? And another said, is it, is it me? It makes sense to be sad that this man that you love, this Jesus, the Messiah, he's going to die and it's going to be one of these people that you're close to that's going to betray him. I get that. But I, I don't understand and it doesn't, I can't really comprehend why they would begin to question within themselves. They would question to Jesus, is it me? Am I going to be the one that does it? You know, you would think after following Jesus, after loving him and seeing all the miracles and everything that he's done, I, I would know where I stand, right? I would be able to look at Jesus after he says this and say, I, I promise you it's not me. I, I love you and I, I'll serve you and I'll follow you to death. But they begin to question even in themselves if they were going to be the one. These people that have been so close to Jesus, they began to... Uh, question even their own selves. And Jesus, he says everything is going to happen the way that it should. And Jesus isn't upset about this. He, he's known. He knows what's about to happen. So it's all going to happen as it's written. I'm going to go away and I'm going to be betrayed, but understand that one that betrays me, that man's going to wish that he was never born. That's, that's heavy news. Yeah. You think about that, sitting in that room as disciples, you hear this information 
You imagine being Judas in that moment and hearing all this. That's, that's a heavy conversation that they're a part of. You would think that they would just talk about this a little bit. I would want to know. I'd start asking questions and trying to figure out who it is. And they'd start having these kind of conversations. They dwell on this topic for a little bit. But Luke records that as they were talking, they kind of brushed past this whole thing with Jesus. And they started to argue about which one of the disciples was going to be the greatest. Forget about this man that we love. I, I know that one of us is going to betray him, but since it's not me, I, I'm better than everyone else, right? You all know that he loves me more and that I'm going to have the greatest name and all of this, all of this kind of stuff. Jesus, hearing this and being the teacher that he was, he stopped them where they were at. And he said, kings of the Gentiles, they exercise lordship over them. But you shouldn't be like the kings. You shouldn't act the way that they act. Whoever is the greatest, that man should be like the least. And the man that is chief or the man that has the, the greatest position or the man that's the head of the table, he should be the one that serves. The man that is uh, on top, he should be like the one that is the lowest. And then Jesus poses this question to his disciples. Who's greater? Mm -hmm. Who do you think is greater? Is it the man that sits at the head of the table? and He's got the prominence and he's got the name and has everything going for him? Or do you think it's the man that serves him? Obviously, you know, Jesus is thinking about this. You would say it's probably the man sitting at the table, right? You would think that man is greater. But Jesus points it back at himself and says, but I am come as the man that serves. I didn't come in prominence. I didn't come with a title and with a name, but I came to serve. Jesus, he shows here the importance of loving and serving people. And we find as we will go through the rest of these, uh, these topics and different events of this evening that Jesus reiterates this over and over again about his love for people, the importance of servanthood, the importance of putting others first. So with that, we're going to transition over to Peter. Yeah, so we go from this kind of somber, bittersweet moment um, that Jesus is having with his disciples, and it's kind of this um, another weird, awkward transition because Jesus goes from teaching about servanthood to telling Peter how he's going to deny him and that the disciples are going to scatter and desert him after he dies. So looking in Luke 22, 31 through 34, and I'm reading in the New Living Translation, it says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow, you will deny me three times that you even know me. So after I read this scripture um, or this passage, I started reflecting and I thought back to verse 31 where it's talking about safe, Satan sifting Peter as wheat. And um, to be honest, I didn't really know what that meant. I'm not a farmer, not a pro in wheat. I have no idea um, what, that, what that meant. So um, we decided to just kind of study that and, and see what that all entailed. So I found it really interesting that he used this parallel for, for Peter because and the disciples because it was something that they really understood in that time because in the first century, this is what they did. Like, it related to them. 
So the goal of sifting wheat was to separate the grain from the wheat. And in the first century, it was called threshing the wheat. So the traditional way of threshing is to spread the harvest all around, usually on the ground, and it's, um, it's usually on concrete or um, brick or stone. And then after you spread it all over the floor, then they beat it or, or um, flail it. And then after it's threshed, it is, it's called winnowed, which means they separate the grain entirely. And so um, when we were studying this, Jesus is kind of, it just seems like Jesus is showing Peter in that parallel that Satan was coming to attack and beat him down and, and trying to remove him entirely. And so that leads us to the question of how do you think, and I'm actually asking and hopefully getting an answer, um, how do you think Peter was feeling in this moment that the Lord was telling him that he would deny him? Do you think he was scared? Yes. Hurt? Angry? Anybody else have any ideas or thoughts? Yeah. Disbelief. Disbelief? Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, how would you feel if someone that you're supposedly the closest to in the world says, you're going to deny me? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, when thinking about this, he had given literally everything to follow Jesus. And now Jesus is looking at him straight in the eyes and saying, well, you know, he's questioning his loyalty to him almost. And he's, he's loved Jesus and followed him. And now this person that he's given his time and all of his energy to, to follow is telling him that he's going to betray him. And the thing that I, the first emotion that I think when I'm reading this passage is anger. And I think you can kind of tell them, tell that with how passionate he's saying. Um, you see in the scripture, he's the first one to stand up and say that he's going to prison and he's going to die with him. And now Jesus is telling him, no, you're going to deny me. So with how loyal that he was to Jesus, I'm sure that this was really hard for him to comprehend. And in Mark, uh, Mark's account in 14, chapter 14, verse 31, it says, when it's talking about Peter, it says, But he spake the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. And when we look up the word vehemently, it actually means forceful or passionately. And I know from personal experience um, that when my husband gets passionate about a certain topic, um, <laughs> there's usually raised voices and flailing of hands. Um, so I kind of get this like image. Not a lot, though. <laughs> I kind of get this image in my mind of like Peter is like speaking passionately to Jesus about this. So, um, and then looking in Luke, we see that Jesus is more pointed, and he's talking more specifically to Peter. But when we look in the accounts of Matthew and Mark, um, Jesus is actually starting out more broad when he's and he's speaking to the disciples. So. In Matthew 26, 31 and through 35, we read, On the way, Jesus told them, Tonight all of you will desert me, for the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter declared, Even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you ever know me. No, Peter insisted, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you, and all the other disciples vowed the same. So in this gospel, Jesus is looking at everyone that is sitting at this table, 
and they all love him and they all care for him. And they're telling them, and Jesus is telling them that everybody that's sitting at this table that loves him is going to desert him. And we see here that Jesus is, is referencing his own death and is painting kind of this um, word picture when he's talking about um, the, saying to the disciples that once the shepherd is struck down, that the sheep are going to scatter. And so I then started imagining how the disciples are probably feeling in this instance. I mean, we've talked about Peter's emotions, but what do you think that the disciples are feeling? I, I think one of the examples that I the closest example I could really think of is, I know that pastor is not Jesus, so please don't, um, He's not. <laughs> don't compare. <laughs> but um, can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine pastor, which is our shepherd, getting up saying to us that he's going to pass away, but that after we're all just going to leave and scatter and forget what we've been taught and walk just a different way. I, I think for me personally, I would probably start to get a little defensive and have all of these questions in my mind like, what, why, what, I don't understand. All the whys and what ifs would probably flood my brain. So um, if I'm thinking these things about the shepherd, my shepherd, can you imagine what the disciples were then thinking about Jesus when he was telling them that? The people that had given up their lives to follow him, they had literally seen him do miracle after miracle after miracle. And then, you know, they're told that that they're going to desert him. So, and then um, you kind of see again, you have Peter declaring, like I said, I know we already talked about Peter's reaction, but you kind of see him declaring with boldness that if everyone is going to desert him, I'll never do that. I'm not doing that. And then assisting that if Jesus dies, he will never desert him and the disciples doing the same. So we see Jesus time after time, again, throughout this night, his omniscience. He knew that Jesus was, or Judas was going to betray him. He knew that Peter was going to deny him and he knew that the disciples would desert him. And so then I think about it from Jesus' perspective. Can you imagine from Jesus' perspective sitting at this table with the people that you're closest to and that are closest to you and knowing that one of them is going to stab you in the back and some of them are going to leave you completely and all while knowing you're going to go die for each and every one of them? If I'm putting myself in that situation, I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if, I don't know if anybody any of us could do that. I can't imagine how hard that would have been, especially with the people, some of the people that he loved most. But I think that's what, um, that's what made Jesus, what he did next, a lot more powerful. It takes a lot for you to uh, sit around someone that doesn't like you, you know, just in our natural flesh, mm -hmm. but to sit around people that you know are going to betray you that are going to hurt you and know that I'm going to sacrifice for them. It's just a, a uh, important um, descriptor of Jesus shows his love and shows his power because I, I don't know if I could do that. Yeah. I don't know if I could sit in that room and love these people and then even more so this, this next topic we're going to talk about. I don't know if I can go through all that after knowing 
ahead of time what they're going to do and how they're going to act. But before we jump into uh, Jesus and, and uh, this next topic of washing his disciples' feet, something that just came up, I started as we were studying this and as we were looking through everything, um, I started to ask a question, couldn't figure it out. And so I want to preface everything by saying, I know that the Bible is 100% true. Okay? I believe everything in the Word of God is true. It says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So there is nothing in the Bible that contradicts itself or points in any other direction. It all is one cohesive story to point us to Jesus. But I wonder. I still have questions. It's okay to have questions. I wonder why this particular topic is only in one of the Gospels. They're going through um, each of them and telling their account of the story. You know, Andrea said at the beginning that three of us, four of us could tell the same story and it'd be a little bit different. I understand a little bit different. I understand you remembering a, a few details that I didn't, probably a lot more than I didn't because my memory's not great. But I, I get the little differences. But this seems like a, a pretty big thing. Seems like a pretty big moment of the evening. And you look through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they don't touch on Jesus washing his disciples' feet. But John does. So it's not that I think it's untrue, but it makes you think with these men that seem to be so meticulous about details. You know, they wrote down everything. The smallest uh, event, like you're going to go see a man, he's going to have a pitcher on his head. Such a small little detail. You would think that they would have captured this big moment. But maybe it's just that they didn't understand the significance of what was really happening. Mm -hmm. We have the benefit today that we get to understand. We get to review and, and look at everything with a little bit of hindsight, understand the, the gravity of what Jesus did here. John 13 and 3, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after he had poured water into a basin, he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had wrapped himself with. So to really understand um, what's happening here, you have to kind of take a look at culture at this time. You have to understand uh, what's happening. Th this was a normal custom. This is something that everyone did. You know, back in uh, the Bible times, they did not have paved roads. I don't know if you knew that. They didn't have really fancy cars with seat warmers and all this kind of stuff that you really need on a night like tonight. They had dirt roads, and they had uh, dust when it was hot, and they had mud when it was raining. They had uh, not only people traveling down these roads, but they had animals, livestock, goats, sheep, camels, all kinds of things. And I don't know if any of you have pets or you've seen goats or animals or anything like that, but they all go to the bathroom. <laughs> and they did that right on the road. So as people were walking, they were stepping in all of this. And day after day, they were getting this stuff all over their feet, this grime and filth. It's really nasty to think about. They're walking in this every day. Mm -hmm. And it's because of this that in Bible times, the feet were considered the filthiest part of the body. 
because of everything they were stepping in, everything they were walking in, this was the filthiest part of the human body at this time. Now, when they would go into a house, it was customary that the host would provide a, a basin of water, and people would usually wash their own feet before they went in. Now, for me, if you come over to my house, don't take your shoes off. I, I don't care. It doesn't bother me. But, okay, take your shoes off. I don't care. I don't think about it when I go into someone else's house. I don't think about taking my shoes off until I see a pile at the door and realize, oh, I probably should have done that. But if my feet looked like that, if my feet smelled like that, if I, I knew what I had been stepping in all day, I would make a point to wash my feet before stepping into someone's house, right? Just something that you, you think of at this time. Most hosts would provide this water and let you wash your own feet. But if the host was wealthy or if they had uh, an abundance of servants, then when you walked into that house, they would have a basin there, but they would also have a servant. And that servant would wash your feet before you went into the house. That is a terrible job. That would be an awful job. You had to be the lowest of the low of the servants. You can put me in the kitchen. You can, I'll do anything. Don't make me sit and wash nasty feet in the same basin of water all night. Awful job. We see this whole concept of foot washing all throughout the Old Testament. You can find story after story where people would go and they would meet at someone's house. There would be a basin there and they would wash their feet. And there's just a, a casual little moment in stories that we catch. But there is a, a story in Luke 7 where we see a, a very different foot washing story. Jesus goes in to eat at a Pharisee's house. The Bible says his name was Simon. And as he was there, a woman from the city came in, and she doesn't have any descriptors. She doesn't have a name, anything that the Bible says other than she was a sinner. How would you like that to be how you're known? This is, this is, uh, don't even have a name. This is a sinner. Wouldn't be very fun. As this woman came in, the Bible says, she was a sinner and she pushed past everybody and went behind Jesus and she knelt down with this alabaster box. And you have to understand that this, this wasn't just something to throw away. This was pricey. This cost something. This, this had value. And this woman that all she was known for was sinning, she knelt down at the feet of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Hindsight, knowing everything that was on his feet, knowing everything that he had stepped in and walked in, she knelt down and she took something that was the most precious to her and poured it over his feet. And she began to, to cry and shed tears and wash his feet. And then she took her hair and she began to dry it off with her hair, taking all the filth and all the, the grime off of Jesus. This woman's humility, this, this act of service by this woman, it changed her entire life. You know, the Pharisee started to question, not even out loud, you know, another moment of Jesus being all-knowing. In his own mind, he started to question, so this guy can't be the Messiah. This, this really can't be the, the chosen. This can't be the, the one that I've heard about because if he really knew who this woman was, if he really knew the, the sins that she had committed, there's no way that he would let her wash his feet. 
And Jesus responds to his thoughts in Luke 7 and 44. It says, And he turned to the woman, and he said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into your house, and you didn't give me water for my feet, but she came in and she washed my feet with her tears. She wiped them with the hairs on her head. He goes on in verse 47 and says, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many. She is a sinner, and she's got a lot of sins, but those are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. He said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. Jesus shows us in this moment the value of servanthood. He shows where he places his value on servanthood in this, this act from a woman who the Bible said was a sinner. The service that was supposed to be done by the lowest of the low. It was only for servants. It wasn't for prominence. It wasn't for prestige. This was for the lowly. Knowing all of this, I've got to believe that that's what was in Peter's mind. I've got to believe that's what he was thinking when Jesus knelt down before him. He saw him wash all the disciples' feet. And he gets to him and he says, Jesus, are you going to? Are you going to wash my feet? See, in John 13, 6, it's, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, you don't even understand what I'm doing. You, you can't even understand the gravity of what's happening right now. But later, you're going to understand. Peter says, no. There's no way. Jesus, you will never wash my feet. I, I can't let you do this. You're my master, you're my, you're my Lord, your Savior, your teacher. You can't do this to me. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. So Peter changes his tune really quickly. He says, well, if that's the case, don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands. Wash my head. If it's, if it's a matter of being a part of you and knowing you, then I, I want to partake in everything I have to because I've got to know who you are. Jesus used this custom to show the disciples that no one is above serving, even Jesus himself. We don't have to wonder really what Jesus' thoughts were, what his purpose was, because he goes on to explain it in verse 12. It says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes back on and returned to his place. He said, do you understand what I've done? You call me teacher, you call me Lord, and rightfully so, because that's who I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. And very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one that sent him. And now that you know these things, now that you understand, you'll be blessed if you do it. That last line was not just for them. That's for us today. If you understand this, this concept of what the kingdom of God is like, that it's not me being greater than everyone else, it's not my, my own prominence, but it's the fact that I, I'm here to serve people and love people the way that Jesus did, mm -hmm. to make myself lesser than everyone else, you'll be blessed because you lived like Jesus. Greatness and prestige, it doesn't matter in the kingdom of God. It's not going to look at your title. It's not going to look at how great you are. 
He said, if you are the greatest, you should become like the least. Love others. Serve others. I've given you this example, and you should do what I've done. I'm thankful for a God that didn't just tell us what to do. That doesn't really, that doesn't do anything for me. My parents will tell you. You just tell me to do something. That doesn't do anything. But if you show me, if you show me what to do, I I can follow that. I can follow a leader that will lead by example. Jesus did that. He came and lived a sinless, spotless life. Bled and died for you and I and showed how real love serves. God values a servant. Tonight, we've got about 15 minutes left. We want to end talking about um, what is arguably one of the most important events of the evening, of this particular night, and that's communion. The custom in this time was to break bread. They were celebrating this Passover feast. They would break bread, and the head of the table, the father, they would begin to recount the stories of Exodus. They would begin to tell all of his children, explain to them why we're doing what we're doing. You need to understand, and they would point back to everything that God did for them. They would remember the spotless lamb that was killed, the blood that they took and put over the doorposts. They would remember back to that angel passing by their house and moving on to the next one. God's protection and God's love at this time. They would remember the law. At this time, the law said that in order for your sins to be remitted, in order for them to be covered, you had to every year take a lamb or a goat over to the priest, over to the tabernacle. And that priest had to kill that lamb for you. You presented it and they would take it. We don't have time to go through all of that, but... You should study it. It's a really cool process. Understands the type and shadow of heaven. You take this lamb and he would kill it on, a, on an altar. Go through all of the process. And if he did everything right, he would walk into the Holy of Holies. He would take the blood of that lamb and he would put it on a mercy seat. So this was the custom. The father would get up and he would explain all of this. He said, this is the covenant that God has with man. But Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus doesn't do what's customary. Instead of pointing back to an old covenant, Jesus points them to a new covenant. It's something that you and I can remember even today. Luke twenty-two fourteen it says, When the hour was come, he sat down at the twelve and the twelve apostles with him, and he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and gave unto them saying, this is my body which is given for you. And this do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the New Testament. This is the testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus was telling each of them, there's about to be a new covenant. No longer are you going to have to take this lamb to a priest to atone for your sins. 
But now Jesus had come to be a spotless lamb, to be a sacrifice for you and I, to shed his blood and in his death, burial, and resurrection, we find new life. We live with him in that. Death to our sins and burial and water baptism. We find newness of life. You receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We're promised eternity in heaven. Not only did Jesus say, yes, there was an old covenant, but I'm going to transform this. I'm going to take it to something new. Um, this is one of the few times where Jesus points backwards and forwards, and he uses this event to help them remember his sacrifice of living a spotless life so that a world who could not pay for their own sin could then have payment. As often as you drink of this wine and eat of this bread, you show the Lord's death until he comes. So in 1 Corinthians 11:23 through 29, we read, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he has betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. So thankful for the cross, aren't you guys? Thankful for a God that loved us enough to die for us.